The United Soccer Coaches is proud to present the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. That's right, the NSCAA is now the United Soccer Coaches. We aren't changing who we are, just what you call us. Start your free, no-risk trial membership today. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join today. We unite coaches at every level of the game around the passion of the game. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. Hello and welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. I am Dean Linky and I am delighted to be with each and every one of you. We have another big show, one of my monster shows, a little longer than normal, but I think worth the entire stop. We kick off with Paul Riley, the head coach of the North Carolina Courage, winners of the 2017 NWSL Shield given to the top team in the regular season for the NWSL. The playoffs begin this weekend. Orlando is at Portland on Saturday on Lifetime, and the Chicago Red Stars are at the North Carolina Courage on Sunday. All four going for a shot at a title in Orlando the following week. The NWSL, in my view, the best women's pro league in the world. Paul Riley, he won it as the head coach last year with the Western New York Flash. Their first season in North Carolina has been amazing. You'll love his story, coaching men at first and switching over to women and having incredible success, including being one of the finalists for the U.S. Women's National Team job that went to Jill Ellis. He's now got a great relationship with Jill Ellis, sending players her way on multiple occasions. From there, we go straight to college soccer and visit with Rob Kehoe, the director of college programs for the United Soccer Coaches as he breaks down all the latest in Division I men's and women's soccer. We like to spray it around, so then we head to D2 women's soccer. Nick Cowell, what a job he's done at St. Edwards in Austin, Texas. A fantastic head coach. Speaking of fantastic, another member of our 30 Under 30 program, Jen Leverton. She played at St. John's. Now she's the assistant coach for the St. John's women's team. You will like Jen Leverton, who, by the way, is getting married after the season. And finally, Chad Waller joins us from the NAIA to talk all things NAIA men's and women's soccer. A big show indeed. And we kick off with Paul Riley. Could win the NWSL Coach of the Year. He's done an amazing job. He's got the North Carolina Courage with the Shield and a game against the Chicago Red Stars on Sunday with a shot in the championship match yet again. Paul Riley, head coach of the North Carolina Courage from the NWSL after this message from Team Snap. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help their customers save time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1. Once again, here's Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky and delighted to be with you for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. We've got a big show for you today, led off by one of the greatest coaches in the women's game, the NWSL Shield winner, 2017 style for the North Carolina Courage, their head coach, Paul Riley. And Paul joins me now. Paul, thanks for being with us. No problem, Dean. How are you doing? All right? Yeah, I'm doing great. It was fantastic to be out there last Saturday for 7,000. I know the result wasn't there, but it was so much fun seeing you guys take the shield to start the game, and now you know what you got to do. You play the Chicago Red Stars on Sunday in one of the semifinals. It'll be Orlando at Portland in the other semifinals. First year in North Carolina, 
Steve Malik bought the Western New York Flash, where you led the team to last year's NWSL championship. When you heard the news that you were coming to North Carolina, what was your thought, Paul? Well, obviously, you know, moves are always difficult, and nobody knows what's going to happen when you're moving, going to a place where you don't know the people and don't know the situation, you know, and stuff. And uh, we've been treated really well in Buffalo, and all fairness, the Salem family have been excellent to us. And, um, you know, the, the, the one negative of being there was the fact that we played in Rochester, we trained in Buffalo, you know, so you know, game day would be almost an away game, you know, an hour and a half drive, and you know, that was a hard part for us, plus the, obviously drawing in Rochester is not quite like the old days, you know, where the Rhinos used to draw 14,000, and, and even uh, the Flash used to draw really well, you know, seven, 8,000 when Wombach played and stuff, so I think it was a good move, I think it was a good move by the Salem too, uh, you know, to keep the club going, keep the women's game pushing forward, and Obviously, I didn't know Steve. I uh, knew Kurt Johnson from way back from the men's game. He was the general manager. And, uh, you know, as soon as I met him, I was pretty comfortable. And obviously, we brought 16 players with us. I brought Scott with me, my assistant coach. And um, that was really it. The 18 of us got on the plane and came down and, and got on with it. And obviously, when we got here, the, the facilities have been fantastic. Uh, you know, the support of the group has been very, very good in terms of the housing situation, travel situation. Uh, staff situation here, you know, we're owned by a men's team, NCFC, so there's a lot of great things you can do between the two two teams when you have that, and obviously the MLS teams have that. Uh, where we have an NASL boys team, and uh, they're well supported and uh, great staff here, and, and obviously that's a massive help when you when you've got a back around back room a back room staff that's really that strong and that big, and it helps everybody out, both the men's and the women's. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to think, uh, based on that uh, analysis, good became great right away, right? Because you get down here in the facilities, the weather, everything's outstanding. And it seems like the players also responded to everything you just mentioned, the facilities, the staff, and even the fans, because it felt like a, a core group of fans embraced you guys right away. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a massive area for women's soccer with UNC being so successful over the last uh, two decades. And, and then you got Duke, who's been obviously a very good team in the last few years, and you know, we're right down the road from NC State, too, and Wake Forest. And there's a lot of women's soccer going on down here. And obviously our club, you know, just after we moved, they purchased the youth club, and you know, 14,000 uh, young players came into our club. So it made the club a massive thing. And, you know, it, that was really the start of it for us. And to come in February and be drawing, you know, seven, 8,000 already is a credit to the to the staff and, in, in, you know, and the officers who are selling tickets every day and getting people interested every day. But there's certainly... a a buzz for women's soccer in the area, and I think that's a massive help for us. And you know, the weather's been fantastic for us too. And you know, we've trained in an indoor bubble last year in Buffalo for the entire year. You know, for six, seven months. So everybody's got a better tan this year. They've <clears throat> been out in the field a little bit more, getting a bit more sun. But that's all good. And yeah, it's been really productive. And you know, the fan base has has grown and grown and grown as the season's gone on. It was a short turnaround from when we got bought in February. You know, to the fact that we started training here in mid-March, so there wasn't a lot of time to sell season tickets and do those things. But I feel with the success of the team this year and and the buzz around town, and you know, there's people starting to really know the players that we could have. You know, a really great fan base next year, and we're excited for that. And we got a young team. You know, last year we had the youngest team in the league, and I think another year in Buffalo, I think they would have all flew the coop. You know, but the fact that we're down in North Carolina, I think they want to stay together now and. You know, when you can keep 16, 18 players together in this league, you can be successful and uh, you can build something and the community can get to know the players. And one of the big issues I always feel in the end of the year is the players leaving all the time and, you know, players retiring, players leaving for Europe, players leaving to go a different way in their lives. And, 
you know, you can't keep people in the same place. So the fans, you know, they get to know somebody and then they disappear. So I think we can keep this young team together and you know, hopefully it will be successful down the road. Yeah, certainly a fantastic team to watch. Love uh, being able to call some of your games as well. Let's get to know Paul Riley a little bit. Uh, as you grew up in England, talk about uh, where you grew up and uh, when you came to the United States, Paul. Well, I came in 1982, would you believe it? My word. I'm still only 32. Um, <laughs> but I came in 80, in 82, went to school at Delphi Long Island. Obviously didn't know where I was going. Um, at the time, it was uh, a big program. You know, Hartwick and Delphi and these schools were were big, were big uh, schools in Division One, and just came over to play. My really, the reason I came was to play in the in the NESL, you know, and that was my goal. I thought I'd play in college for one or two years and then go play. And my freshman year, the league folded, and the NASL folded, um, and obviously life changed, changed a little bit. And I ended up doing uh, undergraduate and had four years there, and then I started playing, for, you know, in the APSL and the ASL. Um, and then the USL, and then coached in, in the USL as I went through, obviously, coaching on the men's side. Coached in college for 12 years at TW Post, Long Island University. Uh, but, you know, before I got here, I mean, most of my soccer was, was Liverpool, really, going to watch the games, and I'm a huge Liverpool fan. So it's a family. <clears throat> you only wear red in our family. There's no blue. There's no any other <laughs> color. So we were a big red family, and we had season tickets, and we go to every game, and, you know, home and away, and you know, we track the team wherever they went, and that's where you know I really learned you know, to love soccer and, and watch football day in, day out. And you know, whether it's listening on the radio or at the game, you know, it was always around the game. You know, kick a ball to school every morning, play three, four hours a day every day. And, you know, coaching kind of thing was a bit of an accident, really. I mean, I finished school and I was 22 and I wanted to play, and I kept playing. And then somebody just said, "Oh, do you want to do your graduate work and coach?" You know, so I said, "Oh, well, that sounds like..." Not fun, but that sounds like something that might work. So did that and stayed in the country. And really was to stay in the country at the time, you know, uh, and, and continue to live here. So I did it. And two years into that, the head coach left, uh, Paul Lasor, and he offered me the head coaching job. And I think there's 12 of my players were older than me. So I got a baptism of fire on the men's side yeah. in college. And that, that you know, taught me a lot, you know. You're dealing with 28, 29-year-old men, and I was 24, you know, 23, 24. So... It wasn't an easy time, and you know, I learned the hard way, but stuck to principles, I guess, and uh, you know, kept learning the game. You know, I'm a huge fan of Bill Shankly and Bob Paisley and Kenny Daglish and and, and these uh, Kevin Keegan and these great coaches, and just kept following and watching games. You know, I love the Spanish league, and uh, you know, I'm I'm probably more South American driven in, in the way I want to play than I am European, even though sometimes the team might not show that, <laughs> but I am driven in that in that department, but. Uh, you know, that's how I learned to coach, and you know, by hook or crook, you know, you do your licenses and you learn a little bit from everybody along the way. And, you know, I went over to the women's game in about 2002 uh, to Long Island Fury, which was our our club in Long Island, which is Albertson Fury and FC Fury. One's in the DA and one's in the ECNL. And Long Island Fury was a mixture of basically our best players from college, and that they played in the WPSL. So I coached in the WPSL. Uh, we won the championship 2002 and in 2003. And then uh, WPS started not long after that, I think 2007. WPS started and got a call from Philadelphia to go into Philly. And, and that's really when I completely went over to the women's side, you know, uh, and coached on the women's side. You know, I really enjoyed coaching the men. It was great coaching the Rough Riders back in the APSL days in the A-League. and uh, A lot of good players I, end, I ended up coaching and playing with. And it was a lot of fun. And the women's game is too, you know. It's great to see players develop and 
when you look at our team now and you see four U.S. internationals on the team, you know, last year, everyone says, oh, they got four U.S. internationals. But last year we had one, you know. So, right. So those other three have developed their game over the last 18 months, made the squad now and become regulars, getting picked every every time there's a camp. So uh, you got to give them credit, you know. But, they, they, you know, we didn't have four last year. We only had one. So I think that's a nice piece for the North Carolina fan base too, the fact that they are uh, been able to, you know, develop their game here and, and I think most of them will stay in the off season and which is great for the community too as well. So that's outstanding. And then that, so I could yeah. that end up in Philadelphia and then obviously the league folded and then uh you know we ended up in ended up in Portland for two years and then the Western New York Flash for a year and now down to Carolina. Here's the thing, there's no surprise that when he came over he thought he was gonna play in the NASL. He was a fantastic player at Adelphi. He's in the Hall of Fame at Adelphi to give you a little idea of how great of a midfielder he was from Liverpool. The man's legit. If you see him on the sideline when the ball rolls over every once in a while, he sh- still shows that magical <laughs> touch. And he told you, you know, one year with the Albany Capitals, a few years with the New Jersey Eagles professionally, then Glen Cove, then Hercules, the New York Atlas, and then the Long Island Rough Riders. Twelve amazing years as CW Post, and then the Long Island Rough Riders head coach, the Fury, and then the Philadelphia Independence, where I first got to know him when I was doing the Fox Soccer Game of the Week. And, and that's what... Uh, I loved about you then because you were just like that description you just gave about your career. With every player, you broke down their strengths, their weaknesses, and you were trying to grow the game, and you continue to do that with the media, Paul, and I absolutely love that. You know, you don't hold back because you're trying to grow something, right? You know that we're all in it to try to promote it, and you you give us uh, full access, and I certainly enjoy that part of it as well. Okay, so the WPS, it doesn't work out, right? What do you remember yeah. about thinking what you were going to do next when that league folded? Well, you know, I run a big club on the island in Long Island, so for me, it wasn't the end of the world. And uh, We ended up in the WPS Elite League with the New York Fury, which was, a, uh, again, a combination of Long Island Fury, all our youth clubs, and then it was all the pro players from Philadelphia. I brought them in, and we basically called them New York Fury, and we played in the WPSL League, got to the semifinal. Funnily enough, we lost the... Uh, Chicago, I believe, in the semifinal. So um, we ended up playing that, and and after that we went to uh, you know that obviously that was just one year that league, and then the NWSL started. But I think that league, you know, we had a lot of the kids from Philly. We had like twelve or thirteen of the players came from Philadelphia, and then Kansas City took nine of them uh, into Kansas City, and that group developed into basically probably the best team that the NWSL had over the past uh, since the league started and won two championships. A lot of them have retired now. Leanne Robinson. Kim McNeil, Nicky Krisic, um, uh, well, A-Rod, Amy Rodriguez, obviously, is not there, but Barney's still around, Sinead Farrelly. Uh, it was a really great group of players, and, uh, you know, Kansas City obviously went to two championships and, and won them both, and, uh, you know, I was quite proud of that because they were the, I guess, probably what this group is now, Buskowski, I can't forget uh, Buskowski because she's a brilliant player. Right. Played at Notre Dame and played for me, and then she, you know, at Philadelphia, and, you know, don't forget, we were the expansion team in Philly, so basically it was everybody who nobody wanted, and that was all that group, and they ended up obviously having two finals in WPS and then going to two championships in Kansas City. So proud of that group, and now they're all retired and doing their own thing, and uh, but they had wonderful careers, all of them. So it was good. Yeah. But, you know, what, losing WPS was tough, and, and obviously the time they were pumping a lot of money into it and probably too much money into just trying to win trophies and not build. Uh, what I think is more important, which is minimum requirements and putting better stadiums together and better practice facilities together for the players and uh, weight rooms and 
uh, workout plans and, you know, cryotherapy and just things that I think players need and need to develop the sport. You know, we were too busy trying to win games and gold pride, you know, won a, won a championship by buying a championship. And, and then, in, you know, Western New York almost did the same thing. You know, they took all their players, uh, spent a fortune, and, you know, it just doesn't work. And I think that's the one thing the NWSL has done well. You know, they've, they've come in and said, hey, we're going to build it slowly. The game's going to grow slowly and we'll do all the right things. And so far, so good. And I think some of the clubs in the NWSL, are, you know, need to improve the minimum requirements as we grow. And uh, I think it's a really, really important part of it because, you know, I don't think you want players retiring at 23, 24. I think it's a help to anybody. And you know, we want to keep these players in the league. So we need to improve anything we can to make it to make it better. And the more connection I feel to the, to the men's clubs has been a big improvement for the women's teams, you know, down in Houston, for instance, and, and obviously Portland's been a massive plus for the league. Um, but I think these type of clubs, I think you'll see more and more connection to the men's teams. And so if you can use all the same pieces, you know, in, in, in the clubs, then it helps everybody out. And, and that's what the NWSL is starting to do. And, and there's no question it's been more productive for Orlando, as you can see by their support structure. And they've become a much better team, even though after year two and, uh, and I think it's going to continue the move towards you know having a men's team and a women's team together. So we'll see what happens. All right, and we're going to get to the matchup with Chicago on Sunday and Orlando's matchup with Portland. But first off, uh, one more thing. I mean, along the way, as you mentioned, uh, all those players that uh, you coached at Philadelphia, I remember you talking about all of them, especially Buskowski, as you were definitely pining for her to get a call-up to the U.S. national team as you were such a proponent for these players that do well in the league getting a shot at the U.S. national team. Well, you got a shot as well. I mean, along the way, somebody said, wait a second, this guy's legit. He can coach. So you were involved in the interview process to become the head coach of the U.S. national team. What can you tell us about that experience? How bad did you want that job? Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, you know, you got Daniel Slayton and Mia Hammer. They were the two interviewing and obviously, the, uh, some of the, the big boys at the federation were there too. Uh, for me, it was my, actually my first job interview. Would you believe it? Uh, the other ones, I just kind of <laughs> met somebody, right. had a chat over a bite to eat, and got a job. You know. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, I had that one interview, and then obviously for the English national team too. So both those were interesting things. And you know, again, we haven't interviewed too much. You know, and to me, I, I find it kind of strange that you interview soccer coaches in an office when we coach on the field. You know, <laughs> train on the field. But there you go. I think it, I think it's more about what you do on the field and the management of the players and stuff, which I think is crucial. Um, I don't know how you can tell that in an interview, but that's just my opinion. But you know, Jill Ellis is obviously the head coach, and she's been brilliant with the league. And I have to say, you know, you know, the old coaches that have been in the past, it's, they're very, you know, they're very what's the name to the league. And I feel like Jill's not. Jill wants the league to be successful. She she wants to help the league. She wants to help the players be better. And we talk weekly about Taylor Smith and Lynn Williams and Sammy Mewis. And, uh, you know, Abby Dalkamp, how we can improve, what can I do from my end, what can she do from her end, and how we develop players. And, and that's how you do it. You know, it's not two separate things. It's one thing together. And, you know, she wants to know about McCalls and Boney, and she wants to know about uh, Kate Rowland and that. And you know, she wants to know how they're doing and how they're progressing and, you know, can they get a shot. And you know, she knows everything about every player in the league, and she gets to watch every day. And that's different now, you know, compared to where it was. And, you know, I think it's a huge plus for the national team. It's a huge plus for the league that there's that much interest. In How bad did you want the job, though, Paul? Were you just going through the process to get the experience, or were you like, man, maybe I can can show them what I can do here and, and get this yeah, job? Yeah, it's tough for me because I love the day-to-day, you know, and of club ball. 
I love being on the training field and love day to day. And I think there's more development in that end of it. Mm-hmm. I think in the national team end of it, it's you know it's a little bit different because you bring you bring them into camp and you're picking the best teams. But obviously, it's, it's an amazing job. And uh, Jill's done a fabulous job with it. I think to be at that level is obviously what you want. And you know the English national team jobs open now, and it gets another plum job for somebody. And uh, I think any national team job. The problem with the national team jobs is you probably know you need national team experience. <laughs> so it's a it's the same thing as, I guess, the pro experience. Uh, you know, to get a job in the NWSL, you need pro experience. But how do you get it if you, if you don't have it? So I guess that's the tricky part. Uh, but you know what? You keep educating yourself. You keep trying to get better. And, and you hope to get a shot someday at some point, whether it be uh, U.S., England, or somewhere else in Europe or in South America and, and see what happens, you know. But certainly the national team, the Olympics, the World Cup is obviously somewhere where the heavy soccer coach in America would want to go. Uh, but I think you just bide your time and just try and get better and improve and, you know, just like we talk about the journey and the process for the players, it's the same for coaches, you know. Um, you know, I've been around the game a long time, and for the life of me, I want to learn more and get better. And every time I go anywhere, I try to read up and, and watch and try and learn and try and get better. And just going to continue to do that and try and give Jill as much help as she needs with the national team in terms of our players, you know, and, and just really opinion in the league, you know. What do you think? We play against these players week in, week out. I think we get a good idea of what the players can do and what they can't do. And, I think you're passing that information on is important. Back to where we started. Here you go. 16 wins, which was one short of an all-time record. A gazillion shutouts, which was also one short of the all-time shutout record as well. So a fantastic season. And now you go in uh, with the Shield, which I know you're going to tell us means nothing as uh, you get ready to take on the Chicago Red Stars. Let's first, though, just uh, kind of get, get uh, let everybody know about this North Carolina Courage team. You said some big names already that are now featured on the national team, but uh, talk about how you made this team up because it's pretty solid from back to front. Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I was just handed the team in Western New York Flash, Charlie Namo and Aaron Lyons were the two guys that built the team, and they built it through a draft of, you know, three years ago. And in that draft, you know, basically Western New York Flash gave everybody away and everybody was shocked. They gave all their top players away, which including Carly Lloyd, Sid LaRue, and a lot of these players. And they took all draft picks, and I think they had four first-round draft picks. And in that first round came Sam Hughes, uh, Abby Dalcamper, uh, Jalen Hinkle, Lynn Williams, uh, and then Sabrina D'Angelo came after that, I think, in the second round. And, and that's really been the core group that the team was built around. And that's been, you know, obviously from that point, they've, they've built two or three there's been two drafts since then, but there's been two or three foreigners coming in. There's been uh, two or three other trades been made, and that, that's really how the team was built. But that draft, I think, will go down as the best draft ever because we were able to basically build a complete team from that draft, and uh, and you've seen those players, you know, develop. You know, from that draft, Dal Camp has gone to the national team. William Williams has gone to the national team. Sammy's become probably a regular um, and a much needed player day in day out for the national team. So I think that draft will go down as the best draft ever. And you know, we, you know, Charlie and, and Aaron took a gamble, and then I was handed a team that were pretty good. They were young. They, they didn't do well the first year in the league, which I think is expected in this league. It's not easy to come in from college and play in the league. And then after that, it was just you know, I just wanted to make it fun for them again. They were miserable in Buffalo at the time, and you know, the results hadn't gone their way. And you know, they want to get better. They want to get on the national team. And I think I just made it fun again. It was just a different voice and uh, different time for them. And uh, had a lot of fun, and to be honest with you, there was no expectation whatsoever. And then we found ourselves, you know, in the last game of the season, if we won, we won in Boston, we would get into the playoffs, and we won, and we took the fourth seed. 
by the skin of our teeth. And, and then we got to Portland in the semi-final, <clears throat> beat them 4-3 in overtime, which was probably our best game of the season by a country mile. I mean, we just, everything went right for us on the day. And as you know, sometimes this ball, you know, it's round. And if you if you have one good game of season and the important one, you can get by. And that's what we did. You know, we got past Portland. And then in the final, we scored with, you know, I think, 26 seconds left to, to tie the game up and win on penalties. So... It's a great group of players. You know, we've added the Bina since Ashley Hatch came in this in this uh, draft now. Uh, Abby Erzig, who's a massive part of the team, the captain, she came in the trade from Chicago uh, two years ago, which was, again, a huge plus. Jess McDonald came in the trade two years ago up front. So that's really how the team was built, and we've added little pieces. O'Sullivan just came in, the Irish international uh, mid-season. Um, who else? Taylor Smith You know, was a walk-on in Western New York. She showed up two weeks into preseason last year. And, you know, just didn't look interested. And, you know, here we are 18 months later, she's on the national team. <laughs> so for all those people out there who don't believe it can happen, it definitely can happen. And she's, you know, and now she's a completely different player, completely different professional than she was 18 months ago. So, you know, that's really, that's it. And the team really like each other. They've me up six, I think six or seven UCLA Bruins. Oh, while I'm saying that, I should remember McCall's and Boney too. She came mid-season uh, last year, championship year. I think she came in May. And there's obviously another massive plus for us. But we have seven UCLA Bruins. Uh, Charlie was based on the West Coast. So there's a lot of West Coast players on the team. Uh, they play together a lot. Uh, they play for Pally Blues together a lot, uh, which Charlie coached. So, you know, having them all, all together, knowing each other, has been a, a massive plus. And, you know, for me, I, I just direct the ship and keep them going and trying to push them on. You know, a lot of them do play on the national teams. I think we have nine internationals in total. So our job is to keep pushing them on, keep developing them. You know, we have a very young team and, and that's exciting, you know. I think it's exciting for the club, for the for the fans, and you know the players love the environment. It's a competitive environment. It's, you know, it's really about the journey and the process for us. It's not about the growth. It's not about you know winning games. We don't talk about championships or playoffs or breaking records or this. We just talk about the next game and the performance and how do we improve the performance? What small things can we tweak to to get better this week? And, and that's really how we do it. You know, and that's how we've done it since day one here. We'll continue to do that. Well, the next game is the playoffs. Uh, let me first say uh, that was a great uh, breakdown of how the team was built and uh, got to know Charlie Namo covering uh, his Pally Blues championships a couple times on Fox Soccer, and he's like you. I mean, he, he uh, throws it all out there for you, so you're armed with all kinds of information. He's got a great soccer mind, so I can see how yeah. you've enjoyed his success as well. All right, well, you said you don't talk about the playoffs, just the next game. Well, guess what? Your next game is the playoffs, right? So yeah. you got to talk yep. about it. Chicago Red Stars. They've uh, been a little bit of a, a thorn in the side of uh, the North Carolina Courage. Talk about what makes them so challenging as they come into town on Sunday, 3.30, Wake Med Soccer Park to take on your team. I think it's just a really good side, well-organized. Roy's a really good coach. I mean, I've known him from the youth level for a long time. and His teams are always the same. He's been very, very successful just about every level he's coached. So I have an enormous amount of respect for him. And you know, They're built around six national team players. You know, they've got a they're just very, very well organized. Their midfield is skillful, technical, talented. Uh, JJ's murdering people in the midfield. You know, she's in that middle of the midfield and she's the destroyer, but they've got a lot of talent in front and obviously Pressy and, and Herta are good players up front and they cause a lot of problems too because Press just knows how to run and she's very smart and she causes a lot of problems, you know. But I think the difficulty we've had with them is scoring goals against them, you know. We haven't really put, put goals in at the right time and Away from home a couple of weeks ago, we won up. We had a goal disallowed, which we only made two, which was a good goal um, based on the video replay. And 
that would have made it 2 0 might have been different, you know. But they're certainly a tough team to break. They got the US national team goalkeeper, Nam and Net, so she's not easy to beat either. So it's a really, really tough team. And you know, whether you play Orlando or whether you play Chicago at this point, I mean I guess it doesn't matter, you know. It's gonna be a one off game, ninety minutes and you know, we're a little bit more athletic than they are. They're probably a little bit more technical in the midfield than we are. Um so it's gonna be a battle with some I think probably different types of players, different types of uh, tactical setups and uh, you know, they'll play a diamond probably, a four four two diamond, that's what they normally play. Um but yeah, they're a good side and you know, they've been to they've been to two last two semi finals and they haven't made it over the hump yet, so I'm I'm sure they're thinking this is their year, you know, they've they've got in the fourth seed, which we had last year. Um, you know, no one's ever won the shield and won the championship, so and we we're on three against Chicago this year, so I guess we're now the underdogs, the number one team now actually <laughs> the underdogs for the first time in, in league history. But uh it'll be an exciting game and we played at home once and played them away twice. We played at home. We had some, you know, Kiwi didn't play. Abby Erzik didn't play in the home game. So, you know, when you've got press on the field, you need your top players on the field. And she wasn't there that day. And I feel like you need her, the two Abbeys together, to be able to deal with Pressy. And, uh, you know, we got to keep Calaprico quiet in the midfield. Uh, we got to keep the fullbacks, Casey Short and Gilliland, flying down the flanks. They're very athletic. And we've got to keep them quiet, too. Uh, but I think more, we got to really put our stamp on the game and, our staff is in the midfield with Muse and, and McCall and Davina and, and obviously Lynn Williams, uh, Hamilton and Hatchie up front. And, you know, we have a lot of speed in the in the area. Our fullbacks are quick, Jaylene and Taylor Smith. So it's going to be a really great tactical battle, I think, too, between the two teams. And I look forward to it for sure. All right. So uh, if you win, uh, that means you go to Orlando to play in the NWSL Championship game. The other matchup is Orlando at Portland. What can you tell us about that game? Well, again, probably two very different tactical approaches to going on there. Tom's team's a bit more footloose and fancy-free, you know. A lot of speed everywhere, a lot of skill. You know, you've got Marta, and, uh, you know, who runs the show, and is still brilliant player, as you saw at the weekend. She's just she's just different class now from everybody in the league, and uh, probably still the best player in the world for me. I mean, I keep looking for other players to take over the throne, but, you know, she'll dictate it. But Portland is a very, very stingy team, you know. They're tight, they're tough to break down defensively. Um, good midfield. They don't have a lot of punch up front. I feel like Orlando's got a little bit more punch up front. I think those in Chicago have got more punch up front. But, you know, they're very tactical. They've got a very good midfield with Haran in the midfield, Ali Long in the midfield, Henri in the midfield. I mean, the midfield is super talented. And, uh, again, two very good teams and two very different teams. But I, I, I you know, it's hard to imagine Portland losing at home on, in front of 20,000. But, you know, we beat them last year. We had our best game of the season. I think Orlando's going to have to play their best game of the season to get a result. But they do score goals, and you know Portland don't score a ton of goals, so I think it'll be a low-scoring game. And um, you have to go with the home team, I think. You know, I have to go with the home team with a one-goal, one-nil win or a two-one win. That would be my prediction, but I'm probably way wrong on that one. <laughs> well. Finally, Paul, uh, it's been great to be in the booth, and uh, obviously I get super excited. I love the women's game, loved it since covering college on the Fox Soccer Game of the Week for years and then seeing these players go from college and still continue to make an impression in NWSL. I've been on the air saying uh, unabashedly that it's the best league in the world. Without question, it's the most competitive league in the world. Can I say both? What are your thoughts on where NWSL stands worldwide? Yeah, I mean, I don't want us to be the best league in the world. I want us to not be the best league so we can get better and keep pushing keep pushing minimum requirements and, you know, wage improvements and stuff like that. But, 
know, we're definitely the most competitive league. You know, one to ten, it doesn't matter who you play given day. Boston, Washington are good teams, man. They cause you a lot of trouble. And that, and that's what the rest of the world doesn't have. You know, they don't have that competitive structure, three or four good teams. But you have to say, when you look around the, the world, there's not really a league that's got this much depth to it. Um, it's got this many good players to win. You know, we're going to lose some foreigners, I think, the next few years as, as the World Cup comes closer. And we've just started to get them. You know, it's good to see Marta here and Nadine's leaving, Henri's leaving, which I, I think is, is troubling for the league. I think we need to to bring more foreign players in. I think they really add a lot to the game. Um, you know, I like it because I think Sam Mewis needs a Dabina around her. And I think Sam needs a Sullivan around her. I think it makes it better, you know. I think the culture improves in practice and, and as a club it improves. So, I think all of us, we all have three foreign players. You know, I'd like to see the league probably extend that to four so we could get an extra foreign player in. Uh, but it will be tricky with the World Cup and Olympics on the horizon. And, uh, you know, I want us to continue to be the best league in the world and uh, bring the best players in the world here. And, you know, obviously extend the season maybe a little bit to nine months too um, so we don't lose players. And, you know, right now that most of the players are going to Australia as soon as the season finishes. You know, I'd like them just to be able to stay here and, make a good lesson from the sport and, and enjoy it and, you know, really build what, what's happening. I mean, when you see the crowd starting to build, and, you know, we're expecting to sell out something close to 10,000. So that's what you want, right? Yeah, that is what you want. <laughs> the growth. It, and, yeah. You know, when you look at that and you look at Houston's crowds improving, Orlando's crowd's great, and Portland, obviously, is pulling 20,000 every game. So, you know, it's, there's definitely growth here. And no one in the world, club teams are drawing those kind of numbers, you know. So, yeah, let's just continue on and, Obviously, the, the success of the U.S. team in the future World Cups and the Olympics is going to be critical, too. We have to keep getting better if we want to remain the number one uh, country in the world in women's soccer. So well, that's the job of the club coaches to make sure that we do our best job with the players that we've got and help Jill and the staff out as much as we can to make sure that you know we do become, uh, we do remain the number one uh, country in the world. All right. Well done, Paul. Final question. The United Soccer Coaches Convention's in Philadelphia, not too far from where you call home as well, and where you've had great success developing so many fantastic players. You'll be there for the draft. It's always a big event, the United Soccer Coaches Convention, formerly called the NSCA Convention. And I trust that uh, you always look forward to the event, especially when it's so close to you in Philadelphia. Well, I think Philly's a great place for it. And I know I think Philly and Baltimore are two places that everybody loves going. You know, it's a great it's a great place to go because we don't see each other very much. You know, all of us are coaching all the time, and whether it's in college, in the pros, in the men's, in the women's, in youth, girls, boys, and we just don't get together. And then you get there, you see so many people you haven't seen in sometimes years. You know, sometimes decades, and uh, it's just brilliant to see There's a lot of great people in the sport. And that's one of my favorite weeks of the year. I have to be honest with you. And, you get to you know, to see people from way back your playing days, even you know, and we all reminisce how you know all of a sudden the goal instead of being a side foot at the back post is now an overhead kick at the back post. You know, things tend to develop a little bit as you get older and seem to exaggerate a little bit. But there's always a ton of great stories and there's a lot of good things to watch too. And again, if you're trying to educate, at the end of the day, if we're all trying to get better, then we should all be there and we should all share information and share growth and and get to watch sessions and, you know, really try and improve the game. And, and that's what the coaches are. That, that, that's what that week's about, uh, keeping people together and letting them talk about the game and trying to grow the game. That's what we're here for. And when you look at the game today, you look at MLS and you look at NWSL, man, what a difference from 15 years ago, you know, 20 years ago. So, you know, let's keep talking along and I'll see everybody in Philadelphia. I love Philly. It's a great town, great sports town. And, 
had some great memories there and look forward to the weekend for sure. Well, and I look forward to Sunday. Talking about uh, being together, I actually bought 50 tickets uh, for my family and friends. And here's the deal. I'm not calling that game. It's on Lifetime. So I'm going as a fan. I might even have, a, if you'll let me, Paul, an adult beverage. And I'm going to soak the entire event in on Sunday and be a part of the 10,000, just enjoying the best team in the league, I think. I wish you the best of luck on Sunday. I'll be cheering for you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot, buddy. I'll see you, you will indeed see me there, Paul Riley, on Sunday. I cannot wait. The NWSL is legit. It's fantastic. And if you can't get to Cary for the North Carolina Courage game or out to Portland for their game on Saturday against Orlando, you can watch them both on Lifetime Television. Check your local listings and make sure you catch, in my view, the greatest women's soccer league in the world. Coming up, we turn our attention to college soccer and a visit with Rob Kehoe, the director of college programs for the United Soccer Coaches, breaking down the movers and shakers in Division I soccer for men and women. Stay with us. It's coming up with Rob Kehoe, the United Soccer Coaches, presented by Team Snap, rolls on. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Once again, here's Dean Linky. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. I am Dean Link. You want to thank Paul Riley, the head coach of the North Carolina Courage, as the NWSL playoffs get started this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, the best women's league in the world. As always, college soccer season heating up midway through the college soccer season, and we've got our monthly visit with Rob Kehoe, the director of college programs for the United Soccer Coaches. Rob, great to be back with you. Thank you, Dean. All right, Rob, the rankings were just recently released. Tell us what you're thinking. Well, there's not all that much change in the rankings this week. You still have Indiana and UCLA on the top of the men's and women's polls. It's interesting, though, if you look at the women's poll, you have 20 out of the top 25 teams that are from the Power Five conferences. Where on the men's side, you only have 14 of the top 25 that are from the Power Five conferences. So you have 11 teams on the men's side, like Western Michigan, Columbia University, Florida International, UNC Wilmington, schools like that that are in the top 25 on the men's side. Where on the women's side, you have a couple that have broken in, like Princeton, Georgetown, University of Cincinnati, Pepperdine. So that's always interesting. And looking at the men's and women's side, you have still a couple teams that haven't lost any games. Nobody is completely clean without any ties. But on the men's side, you still have Indiana. It's 8-0-2. University of Maryland is 8-0-3. Columbia is 5-0-2. And then Florida International has quietly gone 5-0-2 also. And they're at number 17 in the rankings. On the women's side, you have UCLA at 10-0-1, and University of Texas that has certainly had a resurgence this year, and they're at 11-0-1. And then University of Wisconsin and Milwaukee, always a strong side. They're at 11-0-2 out of the Horizon League. So those are some of the interesting things that I see in the rankings this week. From the past week, what were some key highlights for you, Rob? 
Well, Notre Dame traveled down to Indiana University on the men's side, and in front of about 4,000, Indiana prevailed 1-0. As we had talked about in one of the early podcasts, is a game to keep our eyes on was when Creighton was going to go across town to Nebraska-Omaha for that local derby, and it did not disappoint. They had over 4,600 people on a Tuesday night in Omaha to watch Creighton beat Omaha 1-0. UMBC hosted Maryland, and on the hill over in the land of the Retriever, they had over 3,700 for that game, again, this is on a Tuesday night. Maryland and UMBC tied at 1-1. Wake Forest and Clemson might have been the highlight game of the week on the men's side where they had over 4,700 at Wake Forest for a 3-2 double overtime thriller with Wake Forest prevailing. And then a team that's always interesting to keep an eye on during the season, and they're climbing again, is Akron. Akron hosted Michigan State University and won four to one in front of their home crowd, and then Michigan State turned around, beat Ohio State five to one. So figure that one out. So those were some of the top games that I saw on the men's side. On the women's side, you had a thriller at Duke with Duke in the ACC uh, besting Louisville three to two in a double overtime thriller, and then. Uh, for their first defeat, Texas Christian TCU went to Oklahoma State and beat Oklahoma State 1-0. Wake Forest beat Notre Dame for the first time in the school's history 1-0 at Wake Forest. And then, as I mentioned, Wisconsin-Milwaukee continued their uh, wins with two wins last weekend in the Horizon League. And that obviously means the conference races are starting to heat up indeed, Rob. They definitely are, and if you look at, for instance, on the Big Ten, on the men's side, it's a dogfight at the top with Maryland, Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State, Indiana, Wisconsin. All of those are within three points right now, Maryland with a game in hand, and this weekend there will be a number of very interesting games, Maryland, Ohio State, Michigan State travels to uh, Wisconsin, and so those points are certainly going to be starting to shake up. On the women's side in the Big Ten, a surprise, Purdue is at 9-2-1 on the season. They're sitting at the top of the Big Ten at 4-0-1. The ACC, you have your normal suspects sitting on the top, uh, although there are many that could be competing, but you have Duke and North Carolina both at 4-0. On the men's side in the Pac-12, Stanford and Cal are both at 2-0, and and they play each other this weekend, which will be one of the highlight games. And then on the women's side, at 10-0-1 is UCLA, and Stanford at 10-1-0, they're sitting on the top of the Pac-12 women. In the Southeastern Conference, South Carolina continues its strong season at 4-0 and 10-1-0 for the season. And Vanderbilt is slipping up, and they're right behind them at 3-0-1. And that's another surprise, similar to Purdue in the Big Ten. And then in the Big 12, again, as we mentioned, this resurgence of Texas, they're at 3-0-1 in the conference and 11-0-1, and then they're followed by Oklahoma State. So in all the conferences, there are going to be many points exchanged in the weeks to come, but they're in the thick of the conference season now. All right, my favorite topic, and we're going to start featuring this every week, uh, even if uh, you can't be on, and that is the Rob Kehoe multiplicity. If you could be... Ten different places at the same time, the top five games for men and women coming up. Well, TCU is going to Texas, and TCU, as I mentioned, they beat Oklahoma State at Oklahoma State last weekend. Texas is 
undefeated, sitting on the top of the Big 12. TCU goes to Texas on the women's side. West Virginia, Oklahoma State also in the Big 12. And this game is going to, again, be for points at the top there. And this is always a very, very tough contest. Then Purdue is coming to Wisconsin, and Wisconsin's been a top-10 team this year, had some very big wins. Purdue sitting at the top of the Big Ten. They'll come to Madison. Duke plays Florida State at home. And then Wake Forest, hot off their win against Notre Dame, they'll travel to North Carolina. So those are the top five on the women's side. On the men's side, you've got Wake Forest going to North Carolina, Maryland going to Ohio State, Clemson will be home to Notre Dame. Western Michigan and Akron, as I mentioned, Western Michigan has been sitting in the top ten. Akron is on the climb, and this should be a terrific Mid-American Conference match this weekend. And then, of course, one of the highlights of any sport is going to be a Stanford at Cal game. So those are the top five on the men's side. That is great uh, as we uh, multiply Rob Kehoe all over the place. You just got to get that jet, Rob, that you keep talking about, right? Just buy that jet and you'll be good to go. Very good. Look forward to that. Rob Kehoe, the Director of College Programs for the United Soccer Coaches. An outstanding segment. Thanks for being with us, Rob. Thank you, Dean. Always time well spent with Rob Kehoe. Coming up, we'll take a look at Division II Soccer and visit with Nick Cowell, the head coach at St. Edwards. Got his team undefeated there in Austin, Texas. D2 Women's Soccer's Nick Cowell coming up next. The NSCAA is now United Soccer Coaches. We help you develop into better coaches so you can develop better players. We aren't changing who we are, just what you call us. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join today. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. As we try to do during the college season, we look around at all different levels, men and women, and we're going to do that today as we spend time at the D2 women level with a longtime coach uh, who's had success everywhere he's been, talking about Nick Cowell, who is the head women's soccer coach now in his 12th year with the Hilltoppers. That's St. Edwards out in Austin, Texas. Coach Cowell, thanks for being with us. Hi, Dean. It's good to be here. Yeah, delighted to be with you as uh, you come in. Seven wins, no losses, three ties. That's not a bad way to start the season through 10 games, Coach. No, we've been really happy with the way our team has been playing. Um, we've been pretty strong defensively. We've only conceded one goal in 10 games so far this season. And uh, somebody uh, much brighter than me told me if you didn't let the other team score, you couldn't lose. Yeah, no, I like that. Tell us uh, how that one goal was scored, though, because we want to figure out who was the slacker on that goal. <laughs> I couldn't tell you that because everybody else will try it now. <laughs> All right, well said. Then you, you don't need to. All right, so Nick Kyle, let's uh, get to know you a little bit here. 12th season at St. Edwards. You actually uh, came over and you're from England, Birmingham, England, and uh, actually went to Cleveland State where you started in coaching. And you were hooked up there with Bob Nye, who all of us that uh, know the history of the then-named NSCA, now United Soccer Coaches, know that Bob Nye is a red apron. Tell us that story. Yes. Um, one of my best friends that I played with, Paul McGinley, was the men's assistant coach under Bob Nye at the College of Worcester. And he um, basically enabled me to get the women's job at the College of Worcester. So, um, you know, being around Bob and his influence on the NSCAA, he's a you know, former uh, head of the NSCAA, uh, really got us involved in that organization right from the get-go. And um, so I've been very fortunate to have been to pretty much every convention and seen a lot of uh, talent pass through those uh, convention halls. 
All right, I love that story as uh, you spent those first two years in Worcester. And then uh, Texas called. So you go out there to Trinity, I believe, with Coach McGinley. And you stayed in Texas uh, pretty much the entire time. St. Edwards, Trinity, Baylor replacing uh, Randy Waldrum, another former president of the United Soccer Coaches. So talk about the decision to head out to Texas and join Trinity back in 1991. Excuse me. To be honest, I, I really wasn't sure where San Antonio was. It sounded like it was in Mexico, and it, it almost <laughs> is. Um, but uh, Coach McGinley and I uh, traveled down there together and basically started the men's and women's programs at Trinity University. Um, Trinity now is well-known in nearly every sport as a leader in Division Three, but at that time, um, it really didn't have a lot of success in those sports. So uh, we started the men's and women's soccer programs there, and uh, now that they've had a lot of success, um, you know, being nationally ranked every year, um, and after eight years at Trinity, I was looking for a more of a challenge. Um, we kind of had met all of our goals there and uh, really needed another challenge. And then when Randy Waldron left Baylor, I was fortunate enough to get the, the job at Baylor University, and... Um, Spent some happy time uh, up in Waco, Texas. You spent uh, eight years at Trinity and then four years at Baylor and then uh, three years at Sewanee. Talk about the decision to move over to St. Edwards back in 2006. My wife's family is from Texas, and uh, while we love Tennessee, it's a beautiful part of the world, um, we wanted to move back to Texas. And Austin, um, you know, is uh, a growing city. It's it's, um, a great place to live, and we're very close to my wife's family, so... It was just the ideal situation for us. I had always worked at private universities at Worcester, Trinity, Baylor, and Swanee. They're all, you know, private universities. So it was just a good match for me. The academics were strong. The soccer program um, looked like it could be successful. And I felt like I really needed that challenge at that time. Growing up in England, were you deeply in the England soccer scene over there? I was. Um, I grew up in a small town, and our team is, was in the you know, the fourth division, so we were never going to make a lot of money there, so I actually went to the University of Birmingham and studied French and Spanish, got to play in France for a year, and every summer I used to come over and work for the Tampa Bay Rowdies um, at their summer camps, back when the Rowdies were a big deal in the NASL. Um, Met some awesome coaches um, there, and when I graduated from college in England, what one of them called me up one day and said, hey, would you like to come over and play in New York City for a year? And that was, you know, 30 years ago. So um, I didn't anticipate this being my uh, my journey, but it's been a very fulfilling one. I've met lots of great people along the way and got to coach in Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. So it's been, uh, it's been a great career so far. So I grew up in Ohio, and... Um... I love Ohio, right? But a lot of times you find people from Ohio all over the country uh, for various reasons. Why was uh, Ohio your first stop? Just through a a mutual contact, the guy that I was playing for in New York knew uh, Brian Doyle. He needed a graduate assistant, and I wanted to go back to school and get my master's. So it was an opportunity that I took and learned a lot from Brian. Uh, He was a great mentor and really um, that was a great start for me in terms of the coaching world. Uh, he was super organized and broke the game down to a different level than what I was used to. So that was a great start for me. And uh, after I left Cleveland State, I've been a head coach ever since. I've just kind of been 
learning on the fly as we go. I like to ask this question if you listen to this show quite often, uh, particularly, you know, folks that have been in it for a long time. When did you say, you know what, I like coaching women better than men, and this is where I'm going to hang my hat? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I never thought that two years of coaching women would lead to 30 years coaching women. I didn't really think that far ahead, but I think that my personality fits really well with coaching women. Um, I feel like I'm a good communicator in 1v1 situations, um, and um, I'm definitely not a loud screamer and yeller on the field. I feel like um, my coaching is best done on the practice field, and we have a very intense team. I learned a lot from uh, being around Anson Dorrance at his camps when I first started coaching women, so definitely have him to thank for a, a lot of the ideas that I initially had coaching. Um, and, you know, now I've been coaching women for 28 years. It's, um, it's just been a very fulfilling way of, of teaching, and I think that the, the things that I have learned from coaching women are, are a lot deeper and a lot more um, measurable than the things I've probably taught them. It's interesting. I just spent all of uh, last Saturday with Anson. I called his game against Syracuse where they won 7 nothing. could have been 15 to nothing. And then I called the game that night with the North Carolina Courage and um, the Orlando Pride with Marta and Alex Morgan out there. And he still is, you know, just such a galvanizing force for the women's game. What do you remember most about uh, what he taught you about coaching women? I mean, I think he's changed now, but back then, I mean, definitely it was all about allowing women to compete with each other against each other in practice and making them feel that that was okay. I think obviously he's one of the smartest coaches uh, around, just a very bright person in general, has a lot of great ideas. Um, and so, you know, I was obviously brought up in England that I'd only been around men's soccer. So um, there's definitely a different way to look at things than what I was used to. And I think that he had a great insight into the mentality of coaching women. It's, um, you know, the technical and tactical aspects of coaching are definitely there in the men's and women's game. But I can see there are differences between coaching men and women. And he taught me a lot about the, the psychological side of coaching. All right, Nick, full circle. As you said, uh, you wanted to get back to Texas. That's where your wife's family is from. Austin, you're right. That place is legit. Been out there several times. It is a booming, booming city that uh, continues to get better. The culture and everything about Austin is pretty awesome. Talk about this little gem, St. Edward's, sitting right in Austin. Yeah, we're, um, like I said, we're an NCAA Division II school. Um, we're perennially ranked in the top 20 in the nation. I believe we're ranked number four right now in the country. And it's just a, a fantastic private liberal arts school. A lot of people uh, maybe 10 years ago didn't know about the school, but as its ranking has gone up um, in all of the different indices, you know, the U.S. News and World Report, um, that the school has gotten to be better known. The athletic teams have become more successful, and now we feel like we're, you know, one of the top Division II schools in Texas. And... Uh, most of our sports here do very well on the national uh, level. All right. Nick Cowell, you said uh, that you've been to most of the conventions. Uh, so does that mean you'll be in Philadelphia in January? Absolutely. So long as we get an All-American, we'll be there. All right. Perfect. And when you go, what do you, what do you most enjoy about the convention? I mean, obviously, it's, it's the, the, the social aspect of meeting coaches that you probably haven't seen you know, from year to year. Um, enjoy going to some of the award ceremonies to see – you know, people that I've 
grown up with coaching, and now they're starting to, you know, get recognized by the NSCA for their um, coaching accomplishments. And then obviously going to the sessions. I mean, I'm always big on learning new things. I don't think that we ever stop learning as coaches, so I enjoy that aspect too. Nick Cowell, great interview. Fantastic. You, you could work in this business, by the way, as well, for sure. <laughs> Fantastic job. Good luck as uh, you guys are undefeated and have only allowed one goal. Congratulations on all your success. And here's the deal. Every coach that wins a national championship, uh, the way we do this podcast, has to spend time with me recapping the season. So perhaps uh, we'll get to talk to you again. What do you think? We're going to try. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Dean. All right, Nick Cowell, great to be with you. We've got more coming up on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Stay with us. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1. Once again, here's Dean Linky. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. I want to thank Paul Riley, the head coach of the North Carolina Courage. They're in the semifinals of the NWSL playoffs this weekend. Rob Kehoe breaking down all things Division I men and women's soccer. Nick Cowell, the head coach out at St. Edwards in Austin, Texas. D2 women. And now more with women's soccer. Another member of the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30 program, Jen Leverton. She starred at St. John's, and now she's been coaching at St. John's. This is her third season on the bench with Ian Stone and another fantastic member of our 30 Under 30, Jen Leverton, joins me now. Jen, great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, delighted to be with you. And, you know, Jen, we always like to see those stories where players have great success at the collegiate level, and they get that coaching bug, and they get an opportunity to stay at their alma mater. That's got to be pretty special for you. Yeah, I think it, it's something that's really, um, really fun. It's fun to coach with Ian, obviously, see it from a whole new perspective and sort of learn things under him as a, as a coaching member as opposed to a player. And I think the, the girls see it that way as well. They like to sort of pick our brains. The rest of our staff also um, played for Ian Stone. So it's kind of nice that we've all been in their shoes. They sort of can respect that and then get our perspective on it as well. Well, that's got to mean that Ian Stone's a special person then. You play for him and then his entire coaching staff comes back and coaches under him. What makes him so much fun to work with he puts so much effort and energy into the players uh, off the field and on the field that you sort of see all that goes into it i mean st john soccer is something that means so much to the players and to coach that it only makes sense that you would want to go back and sort of learn from him and because he teaches things um, with such tactical poise i think it helps players who sort of get that coaching bug like you said it sort of helps hone in on on what you can kind of bring to the table and he gives a lot of the players that leadership opportunity as sort of a leeway into coaching whereas those juniors and seniors do a lot of the on-field coaching themselves and he lets players problem solve on their own throughout practices which I think leads to high soccer IQs. I like it and really if uh, you get to know you you realize that uh, the coaching bug is in your genes right I mean your dad coached you I think I mean he was a longtime soccer coach tell us a little bit about uh, your dad in coaching and did he coach you and clearly you were very close to it at least yes um, I actually so I started playing soccer at a pretty young age um, and my dad was always around helping me out and coaching those 
small town um, town soccer games um, when we were five or six years old. And then sort of as we started to get older, he coached my sister and I on the club level. And then I just started sticking with it and falling in love with the game. And we sort of stayed together as a father-daughter duo um, probably up until my freshman year of high school. Um, and then I ended up switching club teams um, and played for Tracy Kerr in Massachusetts. So I think it was fun. It was a fun sort of relationship builder um, for the two of us with our competitive juices flowing. But it's been a fun process as well because he's continued coaching. We've actually had a couple of his players come through our program. We have one here now. So it's a fun dynamic. Talk about uh, growing up in Mansfield, Massachusetts, and making the decision to go to the big city and Queens and St. John's. Uh, talk about that whole process. I mean, if it wasn't St. John's, where you were, where were you going to go, and why did you pick St. John's? Going through the recruiting process, you know, it's always a challenge. It's a little bit overwhelming, um, as we always tell the recruits now. And I think when I first came to St. John's, I, to be completely honest, didn't really know much about the program, didn't really know much about the university as a whole. I hadn't really been to a lot of places outside um, of that New England area in terms of looking at colleges. Um, in that particular moment, that didn't have to do with maybe, you know, the Disney tournament and the Jefferson Cup, kind of checking out those colleges as you're there. But from the moment I pretty much got on campus, it was the perfect blend of the urban area, kind of being really close to Manhattan and have a lot of things going on uh, with the city, as well as that sort of gated campus and that community feel with the traditional colleges have. That being said, I spent the day with Ian and sort of got the ins and outs of the program. And for me, the recruiting process was relatively simple because um, I just decided that I wanted to play for, for coach. And that's for me as far as it got. So it worked out pretty well for me, obviously. It was a fantastic set soccer-wise, great um, academics as well. So I think on my end, I couldn't have been more happy with the way things turned out. Um, but for the most part, I just – I pretty much chose St. John's based on coach. <laughs> well, and coach, clearly glad you came. I mean, you're still in the top 10 all-time scores, 17 goals over your career. So you came in as a goal scorer and, and delivered. Talk about uh, even your freshman year. I think you had three goals, so right away you were contributing. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that helped with that um, was the culture that the program had built. So when I came in, there was 15 juniors on the team. So the, obviously the bulk of the class was upperclassmen, and they were sort of rebuilding the program from when they had arrived as freshmen. And just their sort of motivation and determination to be the best program in the Big East sort of set the standard really high, and there was no room for anything less than excellence. Um, so I think that's sort of what I came into as a freshman and something that I tried to carry over throughout my time as a player and then, again, now as a member of the coaching staff. Reading a direct quote from Ian Stone, who is uh, well-respected uh, across the country for his abilities, he says, as coaches, it's always fantastic for us to be able to bring one of our own former student-athletes back to be a part of the coaching staff. Talking about your return, Jen was an outstanding player and leader for St. John's when she was here. She is somebody that really made the most of her ability on the field, in the classroom, and in the community. After three and a half successful years under the tutelage of an outstanding coach and Michelle Canning, another, by the way, former St. John's assistant at New York University, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Jen to our staff. So obviously that uh, means a lot to you, but talk about the decision to, you know, right away go to New York to, you know, learn a little bit before coming back to St. John's. Um, I think a little bit was being in the right place at the right time. And I think something that we do well here at St. John's is really holding all of those individual meetings to sort of see where the players are career wise, what they're looking to do, how can we help them out? Um, and sort of having that open line of communication. So I think maybe my 
my sophomore year of college, I had a meeting with Michelle Canning, who now, as you mentioned, is the head coach at NYU, and I sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this whole college coaching thing, just throwing it out there. I don't know really where, where it will take me, but just kind of putting that in her ear just to keep everybody informed, and then she ends up getting that job my senior year, and then January of my senior year, um, she needed a new assistant, so she gave me a ring, and that was um, a fantastic place to start, obviously. NYU is an awesome university with endless amounts um, of opportunity on and off the field. And I think because she had learned, she worked for Ian for six years, and because she kind of picked up a lot of things from him, it sort of was a great learning environment um, at the Division Three level where it's still really, really competitive and sort of learning the ropes as an assistant and everything that goes on behind the scenes. And then making the transition back to St. John's, um, which is something I really couldn't pass up. Um, I wasn't necessarily looking to leave NYU because I love that position as well. But once I knew the position at St. John's opened up and I came back to campus and met with coach, went over to Belson Stadium, it was something that I couldn't really let slip through my fingers. <laughs> and I think NYU is a great transition just based on learning the game from the other side and not being able to play and how can I impact the game from the sideline. And Michelle was okay with that, right? She understood you wanted to continue to grow. Oh, of course. I mean, she pretty much knew or assumed that I would go for it and or take it if I had the opportunity. It, that, that being said, it wasn't necessarily an easy goodbye because we we're really good friends as well. <laughs> so I think it was a great it was a great move for me career-wise, and I think it also helped play a role and sort of develop me into more of a leader um, from the sideline because I think for the beginning time that I was at NYU, I was really trying to get my feet wet and sort of observe more than I was diving into certain things with coaching points or feedback or any of those types of conversations. So I think it helps a lot, and she's definitely respected that. Okay, so you come in, and you're there. Uh, you know, you help with recruiting, but also because you were such a great attacking player when you played, uh, you're helping spearhead the attack for St. John's. And lo and behold, you've got the final year of Rachel Daly, one of the all-time great goal scorers to play the collegiate game. What was it like coaching her for her final season? Obviously, on the attacking side, she made things uh, relatively easy for me. <laughs> I mean, Rachel is a fantastic player. It's it's almost crazy even when we were um, at practices or when she was here and we would just be kind of going through repetitions or doing set pieces. She, the technique that she has with both feet and just the knack for goal scoring, even when it's a casual setting, is really unbelievable to see. Um, and I think there was a bit of transition with some of our newer players coming in when she was a senior trying to figure out what's the best way for them to play um, in terms of She's going to be in the box, and there's no doubt about it. So how can we kind of work off of her? For building off of Rachel's legacy that she left here, I think initially it was fantastic because she, we knew she was going to get the job done. And then the next year, we're sort of, okay, how do we, as a unit, fill the void that she left once she graduated? So well said. And uh, Rachel Daly now, a member of the Houston Dash of the NWSL. Got to call her game the other day. She's a fantastic player. Okay, so you're – playing then you join New York then you're back at St. John's and you then take the time to apply for the United Soccer Coaches 30 under 30 why was it important for you to be a part of this program there's been a couple of the um, members and colleagues that have applied and been accepted and have spoken very highly about this program and I've sort of followed their journeys while they were in the program and sort of what they've done afterwards with United Soccer Coaches and I think it really just helps develop the game and develop the game and develop us as coaches as well because I think there are so many different situations that we aren't always able to put ourselves in um, as assistant coaches, as head coaches, as club coaches. And I think this is one outlet where we can really gain a lot of knowledge from 
people that we may not be able to come into contact with otherwise. And from my perspective, I actually really appreciate the Men's Forum Mentee Program. Um, I'm currently with someone who coaches men's soccer, Paul, over at Binghamton, and I think it's a whole new perspective. We've had a couple of conversations, and I think even from those short sort of check-ins, it brings a whole new perspective that I wouldn't necessarily have had otherwise with him being in men's soccer and men's collegiate soccer at that. So I just think it's a perfect way to develop because we're all in similar situations in terms of learning the game, learning our positions, and sort of figuring out the best way to get the most out of our players. That's a fantastic answer. And obviously, I mean, you have not stopped at all. Went from straight from, you know, playing to assistant coach at uh, D3 level, now back at your alma mater. So have you thought about uh, at all what you want to be doing in five years from now, or is it just uh, day by day right now? Um, I think having long-term goals is always a good idea and that we can kind of work our way up to them and work backwards from there. So I, I think ideally at some point I would love to be a head coach. I think right now I'm still kind of learning all the ropes and the ins and outs of all the smaller details that go into that Division One head coaching position. Obviously I picked up a lot of information being at Division Three as well and there's so many differences there that I think the more perspective I can have as an assistant and Luckily for me, Ian gives me a lot of responsibilities because he's always trying to sort of help us grow as his staff as well. So I think, one, it makes his job easier, and two, it sort of helps us become we can be the most well-rounded coaches. So right now I would love to be a head coach um, at the collegiate level uh, in the future. Um, I can't say that I'm rushing out the door of St. John's because I (laughs) obviously love this place as well, and I'm very happy with where I'm at. But, yeah, that's that's a long-term plan. Okay, finally, tell us one thing that uh, we won't know about uh, Jen Leverton in the bio that uh, people might find interesting. Jen, give us a shot. Wow, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I never thought about that. Let's see. Well, I'm getting married in January. That's kind of fun. That is awesome. Um, yep. <laughs> so what I would not recommend doing is trying to plan a wedding during the fall season. <laughs> a little bit stressful. Yeah, I don't know, Mom. I'm a big country music buff. That's the other, that's the other piece of information I have. Living in Queens, New York, you don't get that a lot. But And the wedding. Okay, great. Where, where are you getting married? Um, I'm actually getting married in New York. Fantastic. So All right. It'll For... be a fun city thing. Yeah. All right. Is it a, is, is he a soccer guy, or what's the story? He's actually a baseball guy. So another reason I love St. John's. Met the future husband here, so that's always nice. <laughs> All right, fantastic. You know, that was the perfect little nugget. Jen Leverton, great to be with you, and thanks uh, for all you're doing at St. John's, and thanks for being a part of the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30 program and being on this podcast. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Great stuff with Jen Leverton. We will wrap up the show with Chad Waller from the NAIA as we get you caught up on men's and women's soccer in the NAIA. Stay with us. The United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. This is Chad Waller from the NAI with a look at NAI men's and women's soccer. We begin with the men. William Carey out of Mississippi holds the number one spot for the second week in a row in this week's men's soccer top 25 poll. This is just the second time in program history that the Crusaders have claimed the top ranking. Individually speaking in the NAI, Adam James of Benedictine has been named the NAI National Men's Soccer Offensive Player of the Week, while Eddie Windsor of Trinity International was named the NAI National Men's Soccer Defensive Player of the Week. 
Looking at their stats from last week, James scored four goals in the Ravens' upset win over conference opponent and then ranked number six, Mid-America Nazarene. Windsor made his first career start and held Holy Cross scoreless with seven saves. He followed up his debut with an even better performance, making 14 saves and shutting out Cardinal Stritch. Looking back at last week, number 21 Benedictine was responsible for the biggest upset, defeating Mid-America Nazarene by a 4-0 score. The Ravens jumped one spot in the top 25 poll this week to number 20. In a week full of top 25 matchups in NAI men's soccer, one highlight of the schedule will be when number 14 Central Methodist travels to number 9 Mid-America Nazarene for a Heart of America Athletic Conference showdown. After falling in the top 25, defending national champion Hastings has been working its way back up the pole and currently sits at number 8. William Carey holds the longest active winning streak in the NAI at seven straight games. Steve Burke, head coach at Judson College in Illinois, recently won his 550th career game. Burke is currently the all-time leader for men's soccer coaching wins with 553 total. Congratulations to Coach Burke. Pritchard Sabanda of Briarcliff University leads the NAI in goals, scoring 20 in nine matches this year. His teammate Rodrigo Oliveira is the NAI leader in assists with 12. Lincoln Christian's Michael Brand leads the NAI in saves with 112 through 12 matches this year. Switching over to NAI women's soccer, with a perfect 10-0-0 record, Martin Methodist is on top of the NAI coaches' top 25 poll for the third straight week. The Redhawks begin conference play Thursday against Bruton Parker. In the scoring column, Martin Methodist currently owns a 45-6 scoring advantage, including six shutouts. Looking at individual honors... Ashley Cambeats of Cumberland, Tennessee, has been named the NAI National Women's Soccer Defensive Player of the Week, and Avdokia Popadeneva of the University of Northwestern Ohio has been named the NAI National Women's Soccer Offensive Player of the Week. Cambeats posted 13 total saves in two shutouts last week for Cumberland. Meanwhile, Popadeneva finished with five goals, two assists, and 12 points in two wins for the Racers. Nearly two months into the NAI women's soccer season, there are five teams with 10-plus wins, led by the 11 earned by Columbia University out of Missouri and the Masters College out of California. Three of the five teams with 10-plus wins are still undefeated. Overall, there are nine programs that have yet to suffer a loss on the season in the NAI. This week, there are two matches between top 10 programs, both coming within the Golden State Athletic Conference. Wednesday sees number 7 Vanguard traveling to number 9 the Masters. Three days later, Vanguard visits number 6 Westmont. All three of those teams are currently in the upper half of the GSAC Conference standings. Taking a look at the defending national champion, the University of Northwestern Ohio, the Racers are ranked number 3 and stand 9-1-1 on the year with a lone loss to defending runner-up Spring Arbor on September 6th. Since that setback, UNOH is 5-0-1 and leads the Wolverine Hoosier Athletic Conference standings with a 4-0-0 mark. Patrick Gilliam, head coach at Trinity International University, entered the 300-win club after a 4-1 decision against NCAA Division III Cornell on September 9th. Burke is currently number two on the active NEI wins list and became the second active coach behind Oklahoma City's Brian Harvey with 300 career NEI victories. Congratulations to Coach Gilliam. Maline Cabral of Martin Methodist currently leads the NAI in goals with 25 and 10 matches. Teammate Rico Seguera is the top assist performer in the NAI with 14 helpers in 10 matches.
Be sure to check out NEI.org for the latest scores and updates in NEI men's and women's soccer. Needing more NEI soccer news? Make sure to check us out on social media and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the hashtag NAI Soccer. This is the NAI Men's and Women's Soccer Report. I'm Chad Waller. Great job, Chad. Great job, Paul Riley. Great job, Rob Keough, Nick Kyle, Jen Leverton. I want to thank everybody at the United Soccer Coaches, Sean Chevro, Ashley Goodrich, Kurt Austin, Lynn Burley-Manuel, Rob Keough, Ian Barker, Jeff Van Dusen, Pat Madden, Steve Veal, everybody at United Soccer Coaches. It's my pleasure to bring you the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you next week. By being a member of the United Soccer Coaches, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find coaches who are passionate about bettering themselves and their players. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org to find out more.